sixth graders, welcome to episode 13 of Miss K Radio, updates from the world of sixth grade language arts in a very strange school year. I'm glad you're here. This episode, we continue talking about nonfiction books. I'm going to read you the introduction to the book Just Mercy, A True Story of the Fight for Justice by Brian Stevenson. This is another young adult version of a adult book or a regular book. Um, and this one actually was recently made into a movie that came out not, not too long ago. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer and social justice advocate, and he has helped a lot of people um, in their efforts to fight for freedom who are wrongfully imprisoned. Um, and so his books deal a lot with the American justice system and are really informative, sometimes really difficult because the stories are sad and hard. Um, so we're going to hear the introduction and you can think about whether this is a book you might want to read. And there will be a link to the book in the Libby app in the description of this episode. So let's hear the introduction. Introduction. Higher Ground. I wasn't prepared to meet a condemned man. In 1983, I was a 23-year-old Harvard Law School student working at an internship in Georgia, eager and worried that I was in over my head. I had never seen the inside of a maximum security prison and had certainly never been to death row. Georgia's death row is in a prison outside Jackson, a remote rural town. I drove there by myself, my heart pounding harder the closer I got. I was convinced that this man was going to be very disappointed to see me. I didn't really know anything about capital punishment and hadn't even taken a class in criminal procedure yet. I didn't have a basic grasp of the complex appeals process that shaped death penalty litigation, a process that would in time become as familiar to me as the back of my hand. I studied philosophy in college and didn't realize until my senior year that no one would pay me to philosophize when I graduated. I was uncertain about what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew it would have something to do with the lives of the poor, America's history of racial inequality, and the struggle to be just and fair with one another. I found two programs that seemed like the right fit. At Harvard, I could study law while also pursuing a graduate degree in public policy at the Kennedy School of Government. Not long after classes began, I started to worry I'd made the wrong choice. I felt less experienced than my peers. I had never even met a lawyer before starting law school. I felt very fortunate to have been admitted, but by the end of my first year, I'd grown disenchanted. Harvard Law School was a pretty intimidating place, and the courses seemed disconnected from the race and poverty issues that had motivated me to study law in the first place. While my classmates put on expensive suits and interviewed at firms in New York, Los Angeles, or Washington, D.C., I spent the summer after my first year in law school working with a juvenile justice project in Philadelphia and taking advanced calculus courses at night to prepare for my next year at the Kennedy School. The public policy program's curriculum was extremely numbers and statistics focused, leaving me adrift. Then, suddenly, everything came into focus. 
I discovered that the law school offered a one-month intensive course on race and poverty litigation taught by Betsy Bartholet, who had worked as an attorney with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Students were required to spend the month with an organization doing social justice work. So, in December 1983, I found myself on a plane to Atlanta, Georgia, where I was scheduled to spend a few weeks working with the Southern, Southern Prisoners Defense Committee, SPDC, now known as the Southern Center for Human Rights, or SCHR. Their mission? To defend condemned people on death row in Georgia. I met Steve Bright, the director of the SPDC, on my flight down. Steve was a brilliant trial lawyer in his mid-30s. He'd grown up on a farm in Kentucky, ended up in Washington, D.C. at the Public Defender Service, and had just been recruited to take over the SPDC. Unlike so many of my law professors, there was no disconnect between what he did and what he believed in. When we met, he warmly wrapped me in a full-body hug, and then we started talking. We didn't stop until we'd reached Atlanta. Brian, he said at some point during our short flight, capital punishment means them without the capital get the punishment. We can't help people on death row without help from people like you. I processed what he meant. People without money or capital were the ones being punished. I was taken aback by his immediate belief that I had something to offer. He broke down the issues with the death penalty simply but persuasively, and I hung on every word completely engaged by his dedication and charisma. It was deeply affirming to meet someone whose work so powerfully animated his life. I just hope you're not expecting anything too fancy while you're here, he said. Oh no, I assured him. I'm grateful for the opportunity to work with you. Well, we live kind of simply, and the hours are pretty intense, he warned. I quickly realized he wasn't kidding. There were just a few attorneys working at the SPDC when I arrived that winter. In their 30s, men and women, black and white, these lawyers were prepared to fight for the rights of the condemned and those facing unjust treatment in jails and prisons. After years of prohibition and delay, executions were again taking place in the Deep South. Most of SPDC's lawyer had come to Georgia in response to a growing crisis. Death row prisoners couldn't get lawyers and were being denied their right to receive counsel for legal advice. There was a growing fear that people would be killed without ever having their cases reviewed by skilled counsel. Every day we got frantic calls from people who had no legal assistance, but whose execution dates were on the calendar and approaching fast. I'd never heard voices so desperate. When I started my internship, everyone was extremely kind to me, and I felt immediately at home. I did clerical work, answering phones, and researching legal questions for staff. I was just getting settled into my routine when Steve asked me to go to death row to meet with a condemned man who had been there for more than two years. My job was to convey to him one simple message. You will not be killed in the next year. Driving through farmland in rural Georgia, I rehearsed what I would say when I met this man. Hello, my name is Brian. I'm a student with the... No. I'm a law student with, no. My name is Brian Stevenson. I'm a legal intern with the Southern Prisoners Defense Committee, and I've been instructed to inform you that you will not be executed soon. You can't be executed soon? You are not at risk of execution anytime soon. No. 
Soon I found myself pulling up to the intimidating barbed wire fence and white guard tower of the Georgia Diagnostic and Classification State Prison, or as we called it at SPDC, Jackson. This was a hard place. When I told the visitation officer that I was a paralegal sent to meet with a death row prisoner, he looked at me suspiciously. I waited until he brusquely directed me to the small room where the visit would take place. Don't get lost in there. We don't promise to come find you, he warned. The visitation room was an empty metal cage. It was small, and although I knew it couldn't be true, it felt like it was getting smaller by the second. I began worrying again about my lack of preparation. I'd scheduled to meet with the client for one hour, but how would I fill all that time? I sat down on one of the stools that were bolted to the floor and waited anxiously. Finally, I heard the clanging of chains on the other side of the door. The man who walked in seemed even more nervous than I was. He glanced at me, his face screwed up in a worried wince. He was a young, neatly groomed African-American man with short hair, clean-shaven, medium frame and build, wearing bright, clean prison whites. He looked immediately familiar to me, like everyone I'd grown up with, friends from school, people I played sports or music with. The guard removed his handcuffs and the shackles around his ankles and then locked eyes with me and told me I had one hour. The officer seemed to take pleasure in our discomfort, grinning at me before turning on his heel and leaving the room. The metal door banged loudly behind him. The condemned man didn't come any closer, and I didn't know what else to do, so I walked over and offered him my hand. He shook it cautiously. We sat down, and he spoke first. I'm Henry, he said. I'm very sorry, were the first words I blurted out. Despite all my preparations and rehearsed remarks, I couldn't stop myself from apologizing repeatedly. I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Uh, okay, I don't know. Uh, I'm just a law student. I'm not a real lawyer. I'm so sorry. I can't tell you very much, but I don't know very much. The man looked at me worriedly. Is everything all right with my case? Oh, yes, sir. The lawyers at SPDC sent me down to tell you that they don't have a lawyer yet, but you're not at risk of execution any time in the next year. We're working on finding you a lawyer, a real lawyer, and we hope the lawyer will be down to see you in the next few months. I'm just a law student. I'm really happy to help. I mean, if there's something I can do. The man interrupted my chatter by quickly grabbing my hands. I'm not going to have an execution date any time in the next year? No, sir. They said it would be at least a year before you can get an execution date. These words didn't sound comforting to me, but Henry just squeezed my hands tighter and tighter. Thank you, man. I mean, really, thank you. This is great news. His shoulders relaxed, and he looked at me with intense relief in his eyes. You are the first person I've met in over two years after coming to death row who is not a death or death row prisoner or a death row guard. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad to get this news. He exhaled loudly. I've been talking to my wife on the phone, but I haven't wanted her to come and visit me or bring the kids because I was afraid they'd show up and I'd have an execution date. I just don't want them here like that. Now I'm going to tell them they can come and visit. Thank you. I was astonished that he was so happy. I relaxed too, and soon we were both lost in conversation. He told me about his trial. I answered his questions about law school. We talked about our families, about music, about prison. We talked about what's important in life and what's not. We laughed at times, and there were moments when he was very emotional and sad. We kept talking and talking, and it was only when I heard a loud bang on the door that I realized I'd stayed way past my allotted time for the legal visit. 
I looked at my watch. I'd been there three hours. The guard came in. He snarled at me. You should have been done a long time ago. You have to leave. He pulled Henry's hands together behind his back and locked them in handcuffs. Then he roughly shackled Henry's ankles. I could see Henry grimacing with pain. I said, I think those cuffs are on too tight. Can you loosen them, please? You don't tell me how to do my job. Henry gave me a smile and said, It's okay, Brian. Don't worry about this. Just come back and see me again, okay? I could see him wince with each click of the chains being tightened around his waist. Distraught, I mumbled, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. Don't worry about this, Brian, he said, cutting me off. Just come back. I wanted to say something reassuring, something that expressed my gratitude for him being so patient with me and my nerves, but I couldn't think of anything. As the guard shoved him roughly toward the door, Henry looked back at me and smiled. Just before he could be pushed out the door, he planted his feet on the floor. Then he did something completely unexpected. He closed his eyes and tilted his head back. I was confused by what he was doing, but then as he opened his mouth, I understood. He began to sing. He had a tremendous baritone voice that was strong and clear. It startled me and the guard who stopped his pushing. I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound, Lord plant my feet on higher ground. It was an old hymn that they used to sing all the time in the church where I grew up. I hadn't heard it in years. Henry sang slowly and with great sincerity and conviction. Because his ankles were shackled and his hands were locked behind his back, Henry almost stumbled when the guard shoved him forward again, but he kept on singing down the hall. Hearing the song was a precious gift. I had come into the prison feeling insecure and inadequate. I had no right to expect anything from a condemned man on death row, yet he gave me an astonishing measure of his humanity and compassion. In that moment, Henry altered something in my understanding of human potential, redemption, and hopefulness. I finished my internship, committed to helping the death row prisoners I had met that month. Once I returned to law school, I felt an intense desire to understand the laws that permitted and sanctioned the death penalty and other extreme punishments. I piled up courses, constitutional law, litigation, appellate procedure, and federal courts. I plunged deeply into the history of race, poverty, and power. Both law school and my public policy degree had seemed abstract and disconnected before, but after meeting the desperate and imprisoned, they both became relevant and critically important. My short time on death row revealed that there was something skewed in the way our judicial system interprets the law. The more I reflected on the experience, the more I recognized that I had been struggling my whole life with the question of how and why some people are judged unfairly. That was the first half of the introduction to the book Just Mercy, the Young Reader's Edition by Brian Stevenson. Um, I'll read the next part in the next episode. That's some pretty intense storytelling. And you can tell already, I think, that it's going to be an intriguing and powerful book. It's a nonfiction book, but it's still a form of storytelling. I think sometimes we think nonfiction isn't about stories and storytelling, but it is. 
and powerful nonfiction can be a great story that connects to people. You also notice in that excerpt that his learning about what he wanted to do and about the world took a lot of different forms. Going to school, getting into a very fancy school, Harvard, getting there and realizing how it made him feel, which then pushed him to research in other areas, getting involved in community organizations, talking to real people, um, and that's what really helped him understand whole bureaucratic systems, government systems better, was actually talking to human beings. Um, So I think that's a really great perspective to think about as we continue our work with nonfiction and thinking about the power of it and thinking about um, what it's all about. It's about life in the world. Um, It's not meant to be a dusty thing set apart, kind of like the last episode uh, talking about lies my teacher told me and textbooks and how they can really take the life out of things. If this book sounds interesting to you, look for the link to it in Libby uh, in the description of this episode. I'll see you next time for part two. I'd love to hear what you thought of this story. Send me a note and let me know. I'll talk to you soon. Take care, sixth graders.